hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator. All right, welcome back to the next episode of BC Law's Just Law Podcast. I'm Tom Blakely. I'm going to be joined today by Professor Lisa Alexander and David Price to talk about housing, which is an issue that we hear a lot about today. Uh, David Price is the Associate Director of the Initiative on Land, Housing, and Property Rights at BC Law and a longtime community development real estate expert. Uh, Lisa Alexander is a professor at BC Law who focuses on U.S. housing law and policy and the law's role in making housing markets more efficient. She has conducted extensive research in legal and extra legal rights to property, housing, and urban space, most recently including the study on tiny houses. She was also the co-founder and uh, co-director of Texas A&M's program in real estate and community development law programming that you will continue at Boston College Law School. Welcome both of you. Thanks for coming. How are you? Thank you. We're, We're great. great. Uh, well, before we get started, why don't you tell me a little bit about yourselves? You want to start, David? Sure. Um, I, this, I, it's great to be back at Boston College Law School. I graduated in 1991, so about 30, 32 years ago. And uh, then I spent a few years doing real estate law at Goulston and Stores in Boston, mm -hmm. and then spent about 27 years in the community development field, um, where I really I put, you know, being a real estate lawyer's, you know, knowledge to work, um, helping communities in Dorchester and Roxbury in the South End kind of build and sustain affordable housing and, and community, strong communities. And for the last 13 years until I got here recently, I was at Nuestra Comunidad Development Corporation, which is um, headquartered in Roxbury's Nubian Square and kind of serves the Roxbury community. And I was really happy to plan this opportunity to help get the initiative for land, housing, and property rights off the ground at Boston College Law School with Professor Alexander and Professor Thomas Mitchell. And I think this is my sixth week here. Yes. I, I mean, We are so excited to have David Price here as Associate Director. The Initiative on Land, Housing, and Property Rights is a new initiative started by um, Professor Thomas Mitchell, uh, who is a new professor here at Boston College Law School. I am also a new professor here at Boston College Law School, and I teach courses in housing law and policy, and I've done it for a number of years. I've lived in affordable housing myself. I've been an owner, a landlord, a renter, and um, I just find housing law interesting. Uh, I am also a member of the initiative. Um, I'm faculty director of housing programs. Um, I also happen to be married to Professor Thomas Mitchell. Um, I was going to say, <laughs> do I bring it up? Or? Yeah, but um, we've been we've been uh, working on housing issues together, and we're so excited to be here at Boston. And David has just been such an amazing addition because he really understands uh, what's happening on the ground. Very cool. Very cool. Uh, so before we uh, get started with our discussion, I wanted to talk about the initiative itself. As I understand, Professor Alexander, you have a, a panel that's coming up. Do you want to talk a little bit about that? Yeah. So yay, next week, it's Housing <laughs> and Property Law Week here at BC. And um, that's a number of events that are happening on the topic, uh, both created by the initiative um, on land, housing, and property rights, and also the Rappaport Center. Um, so the week is going to start off with some events by the Rappaport Center with Danielle Crinkle, who is their fellow, um, who's going to be working on affordable housing and has lots of experience. Uh, she'll start off. And then um, on Tuesday, um, I'm having a seminar, Tuesday uh, the 21st, and it's basically the class that I usually teach here at BC Law, which is on housing law and policy. And that class has about 20 students in it who are great and awesome, and we have all kinds of scholars and speakers who come to the class, as well as um, some practitioners, we had um, Stephanie Johnson, who is a BC Law alum, come talk to us about her work um, in affordable housing. But this panel is going to be an opportunity to shift this focus to 
practitioners in Boston who actually work on these issues, not just scholars. And um, we're going to have a panel with uh, the Deputy Director of Neighborhood Development at the City of Boston, Jessica Boatwright. Um, we're going to have Roger Brown, who's the Managing Director of the Preservation of Affordable Housing. Uh, we're going to have um, Inquilinos Boricuas en Acción, the Executive Director, Vanessa calderon Rosado. Um, and we're going to have Angie Liu, Executive Director of the Asian Community Development Corporation. Um, and those four panelists are going to be there for students to ask questions and to help us uh, learn more about um, affordable housing. And we're in opening that up to a few people who might want to attend. Awesome. Um, so much of what dominates local news today, particularly nationally, but especially locally, is discussions about housing. So it's hard to be a you know consumer of news or participate in local discussions without hearing debates about it. There's no shortage of folks with opinions about it, you know, people lamenting the high cost of housing. How would you describe the current landscape in Massachusetts as it relates to housing? You know, there's a lot of talk about a stalemate, uh, people talking about interest rates, but how would you describe what's going on? It's obviously a, a very, very tough uh, economic issue, but a policy issue as well. Well, yeah, I'll talk about it broadly. Um, Massachusetts is um, a city that's really exciting in which to actually to study um, housing law and policy. And Boston is a city in particular that's really interesting and important to study. Um, Massachusetts is one of these places that's gone through a lot of transition, right, over the years um, from a sort of deindustrialized society to a high-level knowledge state where lots of knowledge is being produced in all kinds of fields, um, in, uh, you know, healthcare and others. And that means lots of people have come to Boston and want to live here, uh, Lots of people have come to Massachusetts generally to want to live here. And what is true is that some of the zoning laws, some of the other things that have occurred in the past in, in Massachusetts and in Boston have just made it really hard to produce housing. So there's really not sufficient supply for all the people who want to be here and need housing. Um, and that's created a lot of pressures for affordable housing. Um, it is really unaffordable <laughs> to live in Massachusetts and particularly in Boston. Um, it is really difficult for a family um, with two, even two people who make 80% of the area median income, which is something like $100,000, to even find an affordable house. And so this is a real problem that the city of Boston is trying to deal with and that Massachusetts is trying to deal with with a number of new housing policies that have been put forward. Want to elaborate? Yeah, yeah the, look at statewide a little bit. Um, I mean, the big problem is there's not enough housing, period, and not enough affordable housing. I think there's studies that estimate that very low-income families, meaning folks, families with incomes under 35,000, uh, have a shortfall of about 160,000 housing units statewide to meet the need of just those families. And then if you build more than that, then maybe someday the laws of supply and demand will actually kick in and rents and housing prices will stabilize. And, and, and But... We're a long way from that. So there's a lot to be done in terms of production. And we, we can get more into it, but I, well, I wouldn't say there's a stalemate. I think there's real progress and momentum statewide and in the city of Boston that that's, gives us some cause for hope. Yeah, and I think one of the big issues that actually is part of Mayor Wu's plans for Boston, at least, um, is that zoning is an issue that has caused a real problem in the production of housing in um, Massachusetts. We have a preference for single-family zoning um, in many of the cities outside of Boston and within Boston, and it's made it really hard. It, it increases the costs for the development of units, um, and that's one of the things. But that alone actually isn't the only problem. So I think that um, Mayor Wu's plan is really good in that she realizes that's one 
problem that definitely needs to be tackled um, in the city, but that there's a lot of others too. Just because we increase the supply of housing doesn't necessarily mean there's going to be equity in development and that everybody's going to be able to get a house who needs one of a, of a high quality house that advances their human flourishing. So I want to talk a little bit about affordable housing versus affordable home ownership. You know, it, it can feel like there's a problem when you have these national real estate corporations, REITs, you know, Avalon, Graystar, Starwood, uh, these you know, massive national corporations where on average Americans spend at least 30% of their income on rent that, you know, then gets sort of siphoned out of the, the community, goes to these national companies who are often criticized as building boxy, identical uh, apartments, also called uh, five over one. Um, uh, you know, this is money that people are spending towards rent that they're maybe not saving to, uh, towards a down payment to one day try to own their home. On the other hand, homes have never been more expensive. Interest rates are sky high. Ownership keeps getting further and further out of reach for more and more uh, folks. How can home ownership become more attainable? Can you talk a little bit about uh, some of the problems with affordable housing versus home ownership? Well, one of the problems is that um, home ownership is extremely difficult and then extremely inequitable, right, in the sense that um, the home equity rates um, along ethnic lines are really different, right? The home ownership rate is um, about 68%, I believe, for white Americans. It's um, increased slightly for um Hispanic and Asian communities, but not by a lot. And there's still less than the white homeownership rate. And the black homeownership rate is the lowest of all and actually has become lower than what it was in the 1968, which was the creation of the Fair Housing Act, right? So there's a lot of inequity in who gets to be a homeowner. And um, one of the challenges of homeownership is we have the biggest housing subsidy that exists in the United States of America is a housing subsidy that goes to actually predominantly wealthy white homeowners because it's the homeowner's interest uh, tax deduction. And that's the biggest expense that we really make in the nation on housing. All the other programs that we talk about are sort of efforts to make housing more affordable, but they pale in comparison to what we spend on that one interest deduction. So I think that the challenge of homeownership, homeownership is really important because it is an asset. It is a sense of um, an asset that you can use to build wealth. And so we want to increase homeownership, but it's a real challenge because um, not everybody can be a homeowner. And right now, the cost of homeownership in Massachusetts are really high as well as the rents. Yeah, I think um, financing for homeownership, for affordable homeownership in particular, is part of the, the challenge of meeting that need to, to close that gap. Frankly, the racial wealth gap in Massachusetts and the United States is driven not entirely, but it, to its significant degree by that, that racial home ownership gap. And there are agencies that are trying to put more money into home ownership and to target neighborhoods to promote uh, black, Latino, immigrant home ownership. Mass Housing, which is the state's uh, bank that funds affordable housing and mixed income and market rate, has put millions of dollars, uh, I think that's a $100 million fund, into subsidizing home ownership for moderate income families. The city is looking to put more money into that. Uh, Mayor Wu's looking uh, really closely at how how far can you go in targeting communities that have been suffered housing discrimination on, on a racial ground to get them to the front of the line for subsidies to buy homes. And that's a – we could spend a whole podcast talking about that. Yeah. But I think everyone recognizes – and one of our panels yeah, is going to get into that. this history of housing discrimination. And there's a real argument that to have really 
truly fair housing, you need to prioritize those neighborhoods like Roxbury for some of these home ownership subsidies because there is a strong interest and demand. Um, there are also some smaller pieces of legislation um, that, that you probably haven't heard of but would help this, that home buyer education is really important so that people don't get predatory loans and fall into foreclosure. And there's a there's a uh, a funding that needs to be renewed by the MES Division of, the, of Banks Chapter 206 program to require and provide funding for home buyer education programs. Uh, their down payment and mortgage assistance programs for lower and moderate income buyers that some of these agencies are providing. And there are these really innovative programs by groups like the MAHA, the Massachusetts Association of Affordable Housing Alliance, uh, run by Simone Crawford, who's one of the leaders in promoting home ownership for moderate income families. They have a first-gen program to provide a substantial down payment uh, grant to families, buyers who were the first, uh, at least in at least two generations, to own a home. Yeah, I was just going to say that there are a couple of panels during Housing Law and Property Week on that That's subject. Great. Danielle Crinkle is going to be leading a panel that I'm going to be part of, as well as um, a bunch of other practitioners on affordable homeownership specifically. Um, and we also are going to talk about sort of the history of why it's such a problem in some of the panels during the uh, conference. Sure. Uh, so turning to one of the people that you mentioned, Mayor Wu, uh, in an organization that uh, is very powerful and often at the center of all this, which is the BPDA, uh, can you talk about what makes it so controversial? I know the mayor wants to eliminate it or remake it. Uh, you've had people in the BPDA charged with accepting bribes. It's a very controversial and yet powerful entity. Can you just tell us a little bit about that, what it is and what makes it so controversial? Yes. Yeah, so one of the, what I know historically is that one of the real um, impetuses for the BPTA was to use urban um, renewal to um, revitalize, they said, blighted areas within the city of Boston. And the idea was that the definition of what constituted a blighted community and the communities that had eminent domain used and often didn't get just compensation were overwhelmingly um, black communities. Um, communities that had transportation put through them new um, and had therefore has to lose their homes and didn't get just compensation, again, overwhelmingly um, African-American communities. So what um, Mayor Wu is seeking to do is to sort of um, change that history by reconstituting who's on the board, but also giving it a different mission of sort of affordability, sustainability, instead of having the ability to use eminent domain to correct blight and have that be the focus, which was the focus historically and a focus that really led to what we call Negro removal um, rather than real revitalization. I want to add. Yeah, and I, I think on a technically, what, what I've, she, she put out a detailed 76-page campaign platform about the BPDA, and she's starting to implement parts of it. She's to provide accountability. That's, that's one of the critiques of the BPDA is the BPDA was able to do these things because they really were separate from the city. They weren't under the direct control of the city council. They became separated from the city council budget. So personnel are going to be transferred from the BPDA to the city of Boston payroll, which Many people may be surprised to hear that they were not actually City of Boston employees, but to provide more control and accountability, that's going to happen. And the planning functions are going to shift, be shifted, I think, more to the Zoning Board of Appeals and to city agencies so that there's more transparency and accountability about how development decisions get done. And they should be guided by these principles that Professor Alexander just listed. So that's interesting. So you're saying BPDA employees were not Boston employees, but BPDA employees? That, that, 
That's yes, right. Okay. Quasi public agency rather than an actual city government agency. And so they were had a lot of independence and that independence is partially what allowed them to have a mission that wasn't always, I guess, consistent with what the city wanted to do. So what um, Mayor Wu is trying to do is in order to really advance these three principles of sustainability, affordability, she's trying to change the composition and have, um, David said, yeah. more control. I also wanted to ask, going off of that, you might not know the answer to this, and that's fine. Uh, saying the BPDA is a quasi-public agency, another quasi-public agency that people uh, have a lot of mixed opinions about is the MBTA. Is that mm. unique to Boston to have these organizations set up in this way? That seems to create a lot of problems. It's not unique to have quasi-public agencies. Um, that's rampant throughout the United States. Um, but I don't have as much knowledge, I'm sure, as David has about the MBTA here in Boston specifically. So, So I think it's... Fairly typical to have regional transit agencies. That's that's not unusual. Yeah, that's not unusual. Um, and the way it's set up, it's really under control of the governor. Uh, I think in other states, there's more local control. I think there's one seat for the city of Boston on the MBTA board. Even the kind of the the biggest component of users uh, is definitely folks who uh, neighborhoods of the city. And if you think about the commuters who are coming into Boston, really Boston should have more representation. And input into what's going on, and it's and it so it's has the same problem of lack of accountability as the BPDA. But I don't think anyone's saying you shouldn't have a regional transit agency, but you should there should be more transparency and a, and a bigger commitment to fund all the capital repairs that are needed. Yeah, and tra- and regional agencies are needed. There's a whole issue of local government law involved here, where we don't have a really good history of having mm-hmm. regional agencies and entities, but the problems that the MBTA faces and other problems now are really regional in scope. They don't just fall within the borders of Boston or the borders of Brookline. Um, They cross um, all kinds of regions. And so you do need regional agencies, but there's this issue of accountability and funding. Uh, so many observers have long lamented the Boston-centric nature of policymaking in Massachusetts, not just with housing, but but across the board. In an era of remote and hybrid work, where being within a traditionally commutable distance of Boston is perhaps not as important as it once was, and since COVID, more people say that they value a yard and extra space in their home, uh, and housing in such proximity to Boston is in such short supply. Why not look to other parts of the state that might really need revitalization and more people there? Well... I I guess let me just reflect on that. And I think one of the issues is that um, Boston has lost population significantly over time. And that's an issue that I think Mayor Wu is concerned about. It is lost in population, but there's also new, at one point it lost population, but now there's new people coming in and they want to be able to accommodate, I think something like the 800,000 people that are going to be coming by, I think it's 2030. Mm -hmm. Um, And so they need to figure out ways to do that even within Boston. And then there's also the spatial jobs mismatch, right? So that a lot of these jobs not everyone who has a service job, for example, in the city of Boston can just remotely do that service job, you know, work in the restaurant, wash the dishes, like be in the back. Um, And so those people um, have a significant spatial job mismatch where they might have to commute like up to two hours to get to their job and then back to their home. So that's a problem that the city of Boston needs to deal with. So yes, we should look to other areas of the state, but the city of Boston still has to deal with housing issues and problems. And also, there's also this new influx 
of people coming in who haven't lived here historic, who are not the knowledge-based, you know, um, VC tech people that are interested in living here, but immigrants who are from need to be accommodated, people who are being shipped here from Texas, for example. And so the city needs to figure out, well, how do we find new housing to accommodate those individuals as well as preserve housing for people in Boston who may be working class and are having an increasingly difficulty living here. I would just say Boston gets a lot of attention because, in part because Boston has been more willing to build housing than the suburbs. And so that's part of the problem. And although other cities, so-called gateway cities, the old industrial cities like Lawrence, Lowell, Worcester, Framingham, Brockton, they have also tried to build housing. But there's been real resistance in the suburbs. It's tied to that zoning legacy Professor Alexander mentioned. So one, I think, bright spot is that there was a recent – program set up through legislation called the MBTA Communities Zoning Program, which basically allows multifamily housing in communities served by the T in the suburbs, basically as of right. I'm simplifying that. And there are actually some towns that are saying we're not going to adopt that, even though they're required by law to do so. So I think we're finally starting to get some commitment through the state um, and partnership with local towns, whether they're truly willing or not, they've got to go along with it. And that'll help take some of the pressure off Boston. Yeah, and I wanted to just briefly elaborate on that, that there is this history of exclusionary zoning and towns and cities outside of Boston and some neighborhoods within Boston using zoning as a way to prevent um, a diverse number of people living in their communities. And that history of exclusionary zoning is one of the reasons why we need this. The the mayor is pushing for this MBTA um, initiative to say you have to have some more affordable housing where you have a transit stop. Um, But then there's also initiatives that the mayor now within Boston is trying to take to remediate exclusionary zoning. So there's a lot of inclusionary zoning um, efforts that are part of the mayor's new housing plan. Um, There's um, an inclusionary plan where um, if you're going to get, if you're um, a unit that's about, I think it's 50,000 square feet, um, then you have to have a certain percentage of the new buildings that you're doing be for um, affordable housing. I think it's going up to 20%. Um, And so that's an initiative to make sure that there's inclusionary housing within Boston as well as outside. So I wanted to follow up on that, uh, talk a little about 40B housing and talk about uh, the state law where towns are sort of required to submit a, or certain towns are sort of required to submit a plan for how they're going to uh, reach the level of housing that they need. I know, I think as you alluded to, there's one town, the name of which is escaping me, that is pushing back on wanting to do that, maybe more than one. Um, can you just talk a little bit about that law, that policy, and how that's playing out in a lot of these cities and towns? Can I talk about 40B? Sure. So 40, 40B uh, says that for towns whose housing stock has a has a percentage of affordable housing below a certain threshold, I think it's 7%, have an obligation to add affordable housing to try and get up to that number. Um, and there are various carrots and sticks to help towns do that. There, the state helps provide technical assistance for towns. Some towns are small. They don't have a sophisticated community development department like Boston does. But there are agencies like MAPC, the Metropolitan Area Planning Council, that have funding to help towns, no matter how small, to do this. And developers have the right, if the zoning board denies them a building permit for multifamily affordable housing, they can appeal that to a state agency, which is very unusual. Usually when the zoning board in your town says no, the next step is to go to court, but there's there's an there's a and there are very limited grounds for doing so. But you're much on much stronger grounds under 40B if there was really no legitimate reason for opposing it other than people didn't want, you know, moderate income, low income families moving in, 
then you've got the right to build that and overrule the town zoning board. Yeah, and Serge, that just adds on to the history of exclusionary zoning in that, you know, definitely towns um, – Basically, every time affordable housing is recommended, smaller towns, usually predominantly not homogenous towns, opt to say, no, we won't, don't want affordable housing. And it makes it really difficult for builders to build housing in diverse areas. Um, and so this is one of the challenges that 40B is trying to combat. Sure. Um, so I want to go back to uh, something you mentioned, which was accountability. When you talk about uh, policy and accountability in, in, in housing, particularly over the last few years and in, in, in development in this state, it's sort of hard to, to talk about it without touching on some of some of what's gone wrong in this process. And this is a little bit of a longer question, so just bear with me. Um, you know, so the term public-private partnership is thrown around often. You have you know often this relationship between large corporate developers and officials where red tape can be cleared out of the way when folks want it to, the skids greased, etc. Um, you know, there's a substantial amount of money that goes to the same band of developers and construction companies and then, you know, construction unions. Um, and oftentimes that can lead to corruption. Just some examples from the headlines. In 2015, a Mansfield real estate developer was sentenced to 11 years in prison for defrauding property investors and mortgage lenders. 2019, a BPDA official was charged with accepting a $50,000 bribe to get the Boston Zoning Board of Appeals to change a decision that enabled the developer to capture more profit. 2013, a Rhode Island real estate development company's president and CEO were charged in a federal corruption probe. Uh, there's a long running public lawsuit between uh, construction magnet John Fish and Stephen Weiner uh, over development in Boston that, that went sideways. Last fall, a Salem developer sentenced to four years in prison. Recently in Newton, there's been a, a lawsuit alleging, quote, gangster tactics incited by city officials. I mean, you could keep going, but I'll stop there. What is it about housing in this state that routine, routinely attracts this level of corruption between public officials and developers? Because it's it, it seems like it just keeps keeps happening. You keep seeing these headlines. Why do you start with the Boston well, history? I think... We should distinguish between kind of the opportunity for corruption that's always present when there's contracting going on mm -hmm. between a, a government agency and the private sector. I mean, that could happen city, state, federal, and, and it does, and you have to have strong, you know, mechanisms for auditing, accountability, and prosecution where necessary. But I think what's peculiar is that to housing is that so many decisions are made kind of either partly behind closed doors or sometimes entirely that are obscured from the public and sometimes from even from government review. They, for example, the BPDA not really truly being accountable to the city council has shielded some, you know, some decisions from scrutiny. Um, and I think it is true at the BPDA, and this is part of Mary Wu's critique, is that, you know, decisions were made to benefit particular developers and not necessarily to benefit the community where development was happening. And sometimes that's not corruption, it's just political re relationships. And mayors tend, tend to take donations from real estate developers, and those developers tend to get lots of opportunities to make money. Uh, interesting, Mayor Wu has distanced herself from the real estate development community significantly. She the, and, and everyone's commented on it. They, developers really do not have access to her the way they have always had access to mayors of Boston. So she's trying to set set a tone that, you know, there's not going to be any favors, that it's going to be much more out in the open and above board, and she's not going to tolerate the, the opportunity for wrongdoing um, or, or or unaccountability, even legal unaccountability. She's not going to talk. Yeah, and I wanted to put that in a national context that 
over time, the creation of affordable housing has become much more of a public-private partnership where even affordable housing that has some form of federal government subsidy is being created by private entities. And I've written extensively in my scholarship about how that creates real opportunities for opportunism and exploitation um, rather than residents or the affordable housing residents who need affordable housing being the actual beneficiaries of development. They can often be um, exploited, sacrificed, or um, displaced by what happens. And so I think it's an interesting trend here where I think as mayors nationally, Mayor Wu has really um, put herself forward as a mayor that sees housing more as a human right rather than just an exchange value market entity. Um, and that therefore she wants to make sure that that corruption is not happening, but also make sure that her policies are not only seeing housing as a market rate um, endeavor, but something that might be more of a right that all people have access to. And she's very much been an advocate for equitable development, which is a national concept, but that a lot of mayors have not put in place. Right. Part of this story is that the developers who get the projects tend to be white. And she's very focused on closing that racial gap in contracting. And there are a lot of groups who are aligned with that and have been funding programs to build the capacity of minority developers and contractors to get bigger projects and to really have a chance to compete when projects come up for bid. Great. Um, so we've talked a lot about large developers. I just want to talk for a moment about small developers. So small developers and small landlords uh, tend to face ever-tightening screws or heavily affected by rent control. They don't, of course, benefit from the same economies of scale as large developers. There, there was a letter to the editor in the Globe last December titled, Small Landlords Should Not Become an Endangered Species by... Uh, well, a small developer and landlord who wrote, small landlord uh, buildings command lower rents than those owned by large landlords. Putting these small landlords and their affordable housing units at risk, research indicates these small landlords file far fewer evictions than do large landlords because, as a volunteer lawyer's project attorney reminds us, eviction is expensive, it's complicated, and it's painful for everyone involved, especially when you know the person on the other side of the proceeding. Large landlords that provide affordable housing can access dedicated public funds to hire staff and coordinate services for adverse tenants with eviction as a last resort. But small Landlords housing the same at-risk population have little, if any, recourse to such professional help, which is a travesty. Um, and goes on to say some other things. What are your thoughts on small developers and some developments as of late that seem to put uh, put small developers on their on their heels? And as this person said, uh, not wanting to become an endangered species. Yeah, I think that um, that's another one of Mayor Wu's initiatives is bringing back rent control and rent stabilization. Um, Boston has had it, but she wants to now increase um, uh, the the rate at which uh, th that y your rent is um, going to be capped. And um, I think the biggest criticism critics of that are really small landlords. But there have been things that she's putting in um, the home rule propose proposal that. Um, don't necessarily fully include small landlords, so that you, you have to have six or more units at least, which still can be small, but originally I think the proposal was three landlords, so I think she's trying to balance that, but at the same time, um, even small landlords in a situation where we don't have much rate um, vacancy rates and in a situation where rents are going up so high, even small landlords can make it really difficult for people to remain in their homes. And so I think she's trying to balance that difficulty. But And I think that small landlords say, oh, this is really hard for us. And if somebody's bad, we can't get them out. Because another thing that the rent control um, home rule petition has is no fault evictions, which basically say that you can't be evicted unless you've actually missed the rent or done something bad or violated the lease. You can't just be evicted for no fault. Um, and so there critical of it, but I think that it's also really important that um, that 
we still have these protections in place because even small landlords can engage in this kind of predatory and exploitative behavior. And there are a couple of protections for small property owners and developers that are continuing. One is um, the, the, the requirement for inclusionary zoning to you must build affordable units is capped at projects. It used to be if there was more than nine units, you had to do some affordable. I think might, they may have dropped that to seven, but it's still, if you're building small buildings, you're not required to do affordable units. And if you're below a certain threshold, you don't have to go through this very cumbersome and expensive Article 80 review process by the BPDA. I think for there are two two limits. One is fifty thousand square feet. I think another is thirty five thousand. But a lot of small developers are building buildings less than thirty five thousand. So that's a significant benefit to them that they get to bypass that that BPDA process. Uh, so I just have a few questions left. I wanted to take a step back for a second and just talk about uh, an issue in the in the national perspective. So some folks are concerned about REITs, real estate investment trusts, uh, some of these securities. You know, we all remember two thousand eight and how things went wrong. But uh, some of these. Uh, REITs, some of these companies have bought so much housing in the U.S., uh, you know, rental properties, that as people move around the country and demographics change, which, you know, has obviously accelerated post-COVID in the last few years, uh, and rents fluctuate, rents can fall below the mortgage payments on many of these properties and lower the rate of return uh, on securities, creating another sort of subprime crisis. You know, people say we're building too much housing, we're setting ourselves up uh, for another uh, situation similar to what happened in, in, in 2008 and the years leading up to that. I'm just curious your thoughts on that. Is, is that type of situation perhaps on the horizon? Um, well, yes, predatory private equity is an issue that people have been talking about, right? The idea that a lot of private equity funds are buying up um, both housing that was owned and then maybe became foreclosed during the foreclosure crisis of 2008, as well as just other housing, right? So increasingly private equity um, owners are becoming the landlords of a lot of housing. And the problem that that can create is that they have a profit motive, right? Um, they're trying to return, um, give a return to their investors. And that may mean that they want to get out certain kinds of renters. They want to only have certain renters come in. And so the gentrification pressures that predatory private equity can create is significant. Um, in some cities, what happens is you have affordable housing that has been created or was created um, via some policies in the 1990s, 1970s, and that affordable housing is expiring, meaning that the affordability is going to end in 20 years or 30 years. And rather than that housing remaining affordable, one of the problems is that a predatory private equity fund could buy that and then decide, okay, well, yeah, there's affordable people in here, but we want to kick them all out. That's one of the things that I think the rent stabilization is trying to mitigate. Um, but it is a national problem, actually, not just one in Boston, but one that um, a lot of East Coast cities like Boston and New York that have created affordable housing in the past are now facing. Yeah, There's one difference between traditional REITs and what's happening now. REITs used to be ways to aggregate like apartment buildings or, or scattered site rental properties that were run like housing. But increasingly across the country, private equity are buying up single family homes and very right. small apartment buildings and often leaving them vacant, like holding them for development. So some cities are coming up with the idea of taxing uh, those equity uh, firms who are for a vacancy tax, basically. If you're going to buy right. this property and not rent it or sell it, we're going to tax you for that. And I, I'm not sure if Mayor Wu's got that on her agenda, but I know cities across the country are thinking of doing that. 
sticking with this issue of private equity. So I've heard, you know heard a lot about this that you know you have, for lack of a better term, this this vacuuming up of single family housing that's going mm-hmm. on uh, and can really only be done by institutional capital. You know I don't think there's any small or even large landlord that's that's capable of acquiring this much housing and then essentially renting it all out. That you know removes single-family homes from the marketplace that can drive up the cost of housing, I would imagine, result in less ownership. And I guess those are some of the issues, but I'm just curious your thoughts on perhaps other issues with this and, and how it how it might be stopped, because it seems like the, the trend is only accelerating. Well, I think that, just sort of going back to a point I made earlier, that there, I don't think it can be stopped, right? Um, I think the issue is how do you mitigate it or how do you make sure that it doesn't exacerbate already existing problems? And I do think that's the thinking and impetus behind Mayor Wu's proposals, which is that there's going to continue to be some effort to buy these. But, you know, as, as David said, if they're, if you're keeping it vacant, that's a problem. But also, I think that's why the sort of housing as a human right platform that Mayor Wu has put forward is to sort of push back against this conception that housing should just be um, used and valued for its exchange value on the marketplace such that a private predatory equity would own all these single-family homes and then be able to easily sell them or keep them vacant. And that's just the market acting, and we should be okay with that. The, I think the idea is that we have to actually think about the uses of housing and how we can use them and who can access them and where they can get them and where they're located and how they relate to other social issues. Um, and I think that thinking um, is what's supposed to be pushing back to this trend of predatory private equity and private equity firms um, owning stuff. But I think the more that we continue to solely think about housing as a a market-based exchange asset and not as something that people have a use value attachment to, a need for, for shelter over their heads, then I think we're going to continue to see this problem. And I think that's what the the mayor's thinking is behind her proposals. Uh, Last couple of questions, just coming back to the state level. Um, So I wanted to ask about balancing interests. So obviously there's interest in affordability, there's interest in the environment, in historical preservation. Uh, of course, you've got nimbyism, yimbyism, sort of all the different isms. Uh, and, you know, in mass, you've got home rule. You know, there, there's no shortage of, of, of passions and various communities when it comes to opposing or supporting different goals. Who should get to decide the future of, of housing and how should these issues be decided? <laughs> well, I mean, I think the issue is that I am, I think I'm uh, an advocate for equitable development, right? And what is true is that it is expensive to create housing. And so you don't want to create so many barriers that nothing gets built and no one can build anything. And it's expensive to build affordable housing, actually. It's not an easy job to do that in the way that people may think. Um, But what I think is important is that there is a clear history in which the government and the state and often cities have been part of creating inequity. Uh, They have had laws and policies that have made affordable homeownership um, home ownership, housing, um, inequitable. And I think that there needs to be some recognition on the part of cities that they had, they played a role and that they need to put forward laws and policies that are going to mitigate or correct or turn that around. Um, and I think that means thinking about development differently, thinking about what policies are going to be more equitable in terms of meaning that the original residents who may have been disadvantaged by laws and policies in the past actually become the beneficiaries of modern policies or contemporary policies rather than being displaced by them. And that 
I think, means thinking about law very differently than we have traditionally thought about law in many cities and many places and even within academia. And so I think there's been, I know I'm involved in creating a lot of scholarship on that issue, um, but who gets to decide is going to be a very complicated question. It needs to be a multiplicity of, of stakeholders. There needs to be involvement from the city, the private sector, um, government agencies, nonprofits, um, increasingly science and, and people who have knowledge and based and data um, working together. And there are scholars I know thinking about that. And um, I think it's interesting that Mayor Wu's approach as a mayor is really trying to embrace some of those those concepts. Right. I, th I think uh, it should be recognized that voters have a role. I mean, it's significant that Mayor Wu was elected and, and with, with extremely strong support. I think um, I think that her predecessor was fortunate to get a to get a job in uh, uh, President Biden's cabinet, and he's a great guy. But he was he was definitely part of the old guard, mm -hmm. and she's something new. And really, not and I'm not talking generationally, but in terms of the people who voted for her, prioritize housing as an issue. And there are opinion polls nationally that say that housing is rising to the top. When you talk about kitchen table issues, inflation, I mean, housing is right up there. That hasn't always been the case. So I think we're going to see more conversation on a local, state, and national scale about housing as a priority issue. Yeah, and that's, it's just, sorry, just to follow up, it's just central to everything else, right? If you are you don't have shelter, if you don't have a house, it's difficult to get a job because most jobs require it. It affects where you get to go to school. It affects your health outcomes. Comes. We're increasingly researching and learning. So housing is really integral, and I'm glad to see that there's sort of political movement because of the crisis that people face. There are people in lots of cities in the United States that cannot afford their housing or afford the type of housing that they want or afford housing that meets their human needs. And so I think that's why we're seeing a political increase. Just a quick follow-up, uh, David, on something you mentioned before, the, the last question that I wanted to ask. You, know, you mentioned the, the old guard. Now, the the old guard is uh, it's anybody who's you know followed politics and government in, in Boston is a very powerful and inequitable force. Uh, I think you're referring to Mayor Walsh. Obviously, his predecessor, Mayor Menino, was the mayor for like two decades, maybe mm -hmm. more than that. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, Mayor Walsh was in there for I'll see, I think like twenty. 2013 until he was 21 or so yeah um you know and, and mayor Wu obviously was able to to you know come in and, and and run and win but did not have to run against mayor walsh and run against the old guard do you think mayor Wu would have had that same success had she decided to you know compete uh with 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 walsh in a, in a primary have to go directly up against the teeth of that old guard which is such a strong force in boston I I, th I think she would. Yeah. She, she she announced bef long before uh, Mayor Walsh mm -hmm. said he was leaving. Mm -hmm. Everyone expected her to be running against Mayor Walsh, mm -hmm. and I th I think the the um, the turning point was the 2018 election mm -hmm. when Ayanna Presley won that congress the eighth congressional seat against uh, the incumbent who was a very progressive incumbent um, who did, was doing a good job, but. People really wanted a change and wanted representation of communities that were the hardest hit by the policies of the past to have the voice at the table. I think her slogan is the people closest to the, be the pain should be closest to the solution. Mm -hmm. And that was that call for a new kind of leadership was loud and clear in 2018. I think that was a sign to everybody that Michelle Wu was going to have a really strong uh, chance at the mayorship, whoever she ran against. Mm -hmm. So the last question I wanted to ask, and this is perhaps a gross or simplification, as most podcast questions I tend to ask in this room <laughs> are, but, you know, we just spent about uh, 40 minutes extrapolating, you know, what it would, uh, you, know, you say the word housing, and it, you can go on for a long time about all the, the the issues and sort of constituent problems that, that come up when you're having these discussions. But 
simply put, if you had to point to like a, a couple overall topics or, or causes or inputs to these problems, how did things get like this? Because you go back to a few years ago, that this this emergency that it feels like we 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 face now in, in in Boston and in Massachusetts when it comes to housing wasn't always talked about this way. It wasn't always fought over this viciously. I mean, in, in some ways, you look at the inequity and in some of the history, and you can certainly find that. But how did we get to this moment that we're in right now, which really feels like there's a lot going on uh, at a really elevated uh, temperature in a way that we haven't really seen before? I think it's because after the housing crisis and the Great Recession of 2008, um, it kind of really shook things up where a greater number of people than ever before were having a housing crisis, right? There had not been a housing crisis at that level since the Great Depression. And after that, right, coming out of that was really tough for cities and individuals and people. And then at the same time that that was happening, that people were trying to come out of this problem, um, we also, as I had said, had these population changes within Boston. Um, um, and the knowledge sector, the ways in which Boston is a, a source of healthcare um, markets, a source of venture capital, a source of all kinds of things has brought all kinds of people in here that have created new pressures for the people that lived here before. And it's a real issue because we don't have, as we started off saying, an adequate supply of housing. So I think that's partly why housing has become so much more of an issue in Boston and talked about and so much more fraught. And also people, Boston is one of these old cities, right, right. where people have a sense of, of place and memory and right to be here. And as new people come in and the city changes, right, this is a really contested question. Who owns the city? As you said, who gets to decide? Who should the policies be for? The people who are here or the new people who are coming? And um, should are people going to be displaced who feel that Boston is their home? And so that's a real fraught issue. Um, and one of the things that I think makes um, Boston and BC Law School and this place such an interesting place to work on housing issues. Yeah, I think one thing that's different, I agree with all of that, but one thing that's really different is globalization, yeah. kind of accelerating. And we've been talking about all this private equity, vacuuming up housing. I remember before the 2008 recession, high-rise condos in Boston were built and they were like, 40% empty because they were bought by, you know, millionaires and billionaires from Europe and Asia. For who, parking their money in yeah, the assets. Exactly. So you could see it then and, and you're seeing it even in a more accelerated form now. And I think our political system has not been really good at responding to the needs of like working class and middle class folks around housing. And there's been, a, I think, a lot of our political instability is, you know, this kind of populism rising up and saying, you know, at the one party, it's folks like Michelle Wu and Ayanna Presley, you know, different kind of folks in the Republican Party. But there's a people are realizing these bread and butter issues include housing, and that our political system really has to respond to people in a meaningful way, or it's not going to get solved. Yeah, I think the populism certainly a, a large part of it, a, a good point to end on. Um, well, this has been BC Law's Just Law <laughs> podcast. I'm Tom Blakely, joined by Lisa Alexander and David Price talking about housing. Uh, Lisa, David, thank you very much, uh, both of you very much for, for coming in. Until next time, that'll do it for this one. Thanks for tuning in. Thanks for having us. Thanks.